0: but I'll, I'll break the mold of my type and try to start on time. Um, and I'll start by introducing myself so that you have a little bit of time to uh, find your seats and, and get ready. To go through the entire history of the Soviet Union in one hour. Uh, so, my name is Michelle O'Brien. I am a PhD student at the University of Washington in the sociology department, and I'm affiliated with the Allison Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Central Asian Studies, um, from which Val is here, Val Petrova, who has lots and lots of materials for you, including a really cool USB that I'm gonna steal. Uh, if anyone doesn't want theirs. Um, And uh, it has my PowerPoint on it. It has some uh, classroom country profiles of uh, some countries in the region, including Russia and Ukraine, which we'll be talking about today. So if you wanted to pick up some materials that are back there on the back table, I also have some recommended reading at the end of the PowerPoint that I did not give to Val in time, um, so if you would like to get more information, I'm going to put up my contact information. You're also um, welcome to contact Val and we'll get you hooked up with whatever uh, materials you want after this talk. So today I'm going to be talking about the legacy of the Soviet Union in the post-Soviet space. And, um, I am studying politics and migration in contemporary Russia and Central Asia. That's my sort of field. Um, So I'm going to be trying to tie in the legacy of the Soviet Union and the history of the Soviet Union into contemporary geopolitics. And hopefully, this will help us uh, think about how we approach the region in terms of how we teach uh, our students about the region. And what I'm hoping to do is tie in the history of the Soviet Union. To current affairs, um, so we'll be talking a little bit about Crimea, and we'll be talking a little bit about Syria, not too much, hopefully, um, unless you have more questions about it. I'm not a Syria expert, but I I can say something about Putin's relationship with Assad, um, and so that's what we're going to be trying to do today: is sort of unpack the legacy of the Soviet Union in order to better understand sort of how we talk about the region today. So, raise your hand if you uh, are a geographer by training. Can get a show of hands? All right, okay, great. I really wanted to have a map for you guys. Um, so this is the post-Soviet space. So obviously Russia, the big player here. Um, down here, there's a block. Uh, this is Central Asia here, are all the stands. And then the Caucasus um, right down here by the Caspian Sea and then what we consider Eastern Europe and the Baltic states. To the west of Russia. So, a quarter century after the fall of communism, our sort of collective understanding of this region as a whole has remained really murky. Even after this fall of the symbolic Iron Curtain, we still don't have a lot of information, we still have a lot of common myths, and we still have a lot of focus, especially in the West, on sort of esoteric leaders um, instead of sort of a more holistic understanding of the region. So, this is. do you remember, show of hands if you remember this whole big report that was put out um, a couple of months ago about the gunslinger Gate, the Putin's walk, how he has a, a swagger in his walk? <laughs> so we focus on things like this, right? Why does Putin walk like that? The gunslinger's Gate, and even like NPR had this betrayal, right? Our, our favored NPR said, why does Vladimir Putin walk with so much swagger? Right? So we're focusing on these esoteric leaders at the expense of a more sort of nuanced understanding. But the media is not always so banal. Relations between the U.S. and Russia have deteriorated in, Russian year, in recent years. We know that. Um, and there's been conflict in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And... Um, Putin's relationship with, with uh, Syria's Assad has really uh, exacerbated these tensions to the point that lots of Western media has talked about a new Cold War, and the former president of Russia, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, recently called it sort of the Third World War. Right, so we have lots of different ways that we understand this region. Not all of them are helpful. What I want to do today is think about a comparative historical approach, looking at these historical tipping points to tie them into both um, contemporary affairs, but also looking at comparative cases that might be more familiar to Western audiences and more familiar to your students. I wanna be able to help you prepare students to engage with this region and all of its complexities while also sort of debunking some of the common myths. So I'm gonna go over lots of tipping points and I promise I won't test you on any of this. Um, We're gonna go through basically the end of an empire walk through the revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, go through some of the Soviet policies and how they've affected contemporary politics, and then we'll go through the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and how Russia has sort of positioned itself today. So let's start with the end of the empire. This is um, a famous last photo of Nicholas II. You may remember his family because of Rasputin. And the Disney-fied Anastasia story, right? This is the royal family, they were taken out um, by basically political entrepreneurs, um, assassinated, and there was a very shady character named Rasputin who led to all of this downfall, and Disney sort of took that and ran with it and made him a wizard, I think. Um, So this is a very uh, famous family. And what makes Nicholas II the last Tsar of Russia and what made him so unpopular was he ruled over a handful of just deafening defeats. M- namely, he, he ruled over the Russo-Japanese War, where Russia just, I, I mean, was humiliated. Um, and then he ruled over the entry into World War I. And at first, um, the entry to World War One was greeted with a lot of flag waving, a lot of national pride. This sort of swell up of national pride that often comes with entry into these big sort of um, these big sort of epic wars that sort of help you identify with your country. Um, but then there were food shortages, and then there were fuel shortages, and then lots of these grievances that had been sort of brewing under the empire started to bubble up to the top, um, and we've got lots and lots of unrest, which led to the ability for the Bolsheviks to take over. So what happens in 1917 is that we've had three years of war. um, And the Bolsheviks were this more radical communist group. Um, There was a more moderate communist group at the time called the Mensheviks. Um, So Bolsheviks means the greater, and Mensheviks means the lesser. Who do you think invented that name? (laughs) (laughs) So the Bolsheviks. this more radical group named themselves the, the greater of the two parties. And um, they were led by this man, Vladimir Lenin, who you may uh, sort of recognize from lots of propaganda posters. Um, to put these events into a global context, this time period was a very important time period for a lot of different collective action, including this was about the peak of the US suffragette movement. So in 1917, the same year, you had. Um, the women activists for the right to vote, um, getting beaten and arrested, and you know this sort of very iconic uh, time that they spent in jail that really spurred on the sort of peak of the suffragette movement. Um, so this sort of is a global time of collective action, a global time of unrest. And in Russia, um, the revolutions of 1917 are typically considered the Bolshevik Revolution, but in reality there are these two distinct moments in the revolution. One is in February, the February Re- Revolution, and the other is in October. So February's demonstration brought out about 200,000 participants um, carrying banners that read things like Down with the Autocracy. Um, The demonstrators were concentrated in Petrograd, which is now St. Petersburg, which is pictured here. And you can see that there are a large number of women in this crowd. Lots and lots of women activists came out for the February Revolution. And this is important because Nicholas II's reaction to these demonstrations was to order his guards to fire into the crowds. He said, thin the crowds with bullets. Right. So he ordered his troops to fire into the crowds. The troops took a look at the crowds. Lots and lots of women. They mutinied. So they laid down their rifles. Um, they estimate that maybe 40,000 rifles were handed over to the protesters. Um, and they joined in with the protests. And so at this point, Nicholas II abdicated his throne. So after the February Revolution then, Lenin, who had been living in exile as a sort of opposition to the regime, came back. And there was a provisional government. And Lenin began to undermine that government um, in order to get the Bolsheviks into power. So there were a a handful of failed attempts by the Bolsheviks throughout the year. But in October, they basically walked into the Winter Palace. um, And all of the guards said, "Okay," And they laid down their guns. And there was this very anticlimactic revolution. And the Bolsheviks are now in power. So before we move on to the policies and, and the details of the policies that the Bolsheviks um, had implemented, planned and implemented in the early Soviet days, I want to just emphasize that the Bolshevik party was not just a change in leaders. This was a truly revolutionary party. They considered themselves revolutionaries. And they consider themselves builders of a new, better way to be in the world as a state. So what this means is that they built very ambitious projects to fully transform the institutions in Russia and then again and then later the post-Soviet space or the Soviet space. So part of what they had were these very ambitious visions which they then implemented. One of these visions was to have a supranational class of identity. This sort of class-based identity that you're a Soviet man, you're a Soviet woman, you're a comrade before anything else. So you have lots of different republics, 15 different Soviet socialist republics by the time it's fully formed in the mid 1920s. And you are allowed to be Ukrainian, you're allowed to be Estonian, you're allowed to have a sort of rich cultural national identity, but the Soviet identity will always be above that. So nation building processes were limited in that way to, um, they were differentiated by good and bad nationalities. So, the Soviet ethnographers, and they did hire real ethnographers to go in and study the far flung regions, said, OK, in Central Asia, that block of stands right down in the south, in Central Asia, they have this sort of good potential for nationality. They have a sort of potential to have this rich cultural heritage. We're going to help them build that, we're going to help them form a national identity. In Ukraine, they have a bad national identity. Right? very strong, it's going to supersede the Soviet identity, and that's not what we want. And you know, Ukraine did have rebellion, Re- Ukraine did have collective action to protest um, the Soviet takeover, and Ukraine did have independence for two years before they were finally sort of subsumed into the Soviet Union. So <clears throat> where national identity had already existed, this Russian cultural superiority and this Russification policy clashed with what was already there. And where it did not exist, like in Central Asia and the Caucasus, where there were lots of different sort of ethnic clan identities, um, it, didn't, it didn't clash. So you have the sort of differential outcomes in Eastern Europe and in Central Asia, where you have Russification and the nationalities building process clashing in sort of different ways. So this had a lot of unintended consequences. Um, Because there was no sort of national identity, there were all these sort of regional identities in Central Asia, the building of these identities and the building of these borders created a potential for a lot of conflict. And getting recognized as the sort of holder of your heritage, getting recognized as the sort of cultural bearers of national heritage, if you were a Kazakh and you now live in Kazakhstan, which did not exist before, then you have all of these material incentives. You get the institutional organs that Moscow had. You get education. You get education in your native language along with Russian. You get sort of the bureaucratic operations. You get uh, post offices. You get train stations. You get signs in your native language. So you have this sort of cultural, sort of symbolic and material incentive to adhere to that national identity, right? To conform to that national identity that was sort of a top-down process. This is a really... um Devastating Soviet project, and most historians consider this to be one of the most damaging policies of the Soviet um, project. And this is forced collectivization. So, this is a propaganda poster from about the height of collectivization, and it says um, this very sort of like eager um, peasant woman and her like very strapping sort of like farmer husband are calling for, um, they're saying, come, comrades, to our collective. So what happens in collectivization is they decide, Soviet um, bureaucracy in Moscow decides that we will be all much better off if we pool our resources agriculturally. So what this means is that we build these big collectives where you uh, submit your land, your livestock, your property to a collective and no more individual property is allowed. This includes individual agricultural activities. So during collectivization, even your sort of individual like backyard, household, garden is illegal, outlawed. So you're submitting all of this land, all of your labor now to these collectives. And there are two things that happened here. One was that um, farmers and peasants who had um, lots and lots of land and lots of lots of livestock felt very exploited, right? Because now they're in this collective, they don't get to do their household gardens there's no such thing anymore as subsistence farming. Now you're getting quotas from Moscow. You're growing what they want you to grow. You're no longer able to do subsistence farming. You're no longer uh, allowed to grow food for your family. The second thing that happened was the beginning of um, what the Soviets would now use as a tactic throughout the rest of their history, which is forced migration. And so part of it was forced migration of peasants. You could, be, um, you could submit your land to a collective and be forcibly removed to a different collective at any point. Um, if you resisted, it's possible that you could be arrested and sent to the Soviet labor camp system, which uh, is called the Gulag system. Um, and there was also forced migration in a different direction which was of loyal ethnic Russians who were sort of loyal to the communist cause to these collectives to be a sort of positive ideological role model. So. To lots and lots of collectives in these sort of far-flung places across the Soviet Union, Um, there was forced migration of ethnic Russians um, and loyal communists to those areas. So you have a sort of dispersal of population that we'll talk about a little bit more on these other tipping points that it really uh, matters for today's politics. Okay, so of the many, many groups targeted by Stalin's forced migration policies, um, I'll just talk a, briefly about one case and that's the case of the Crimean Tatars um, so the Tatar national identity in the Russian Empire was considered a sort of modern Muslim identity with a Turkic heritage um, and for the most part with some Soviet supranational identity so in a lot of ways this was kind of an ideal Soviet project right <coughs> Crimean Tatars had some Soviet identity they had this rich cultural heritage but um, they, the Soviet policies of collectivization led to massive famine in Crimea, and when you have things like poverty and famine, that leads to unrest. And because Crimean Tatars were um, opposing Soviet policy, because they were opposing what was going on with collectivization, um, there was a lot of unrest about, you know not being able to grow your own food and be your subsistence farmer, which they had a, a long history of doing, um, Stalin, who was now in power in this era, um, in the, about the mid-1930s, decided that um, he was going to have to shift this area completely demographically. And so, again, forced migration of ethnic Russians into the area to sort of infuse a positive sort of Soviet role model into the area. Um, And then, because that didn't really hold, then we get the deportation, mass deportation of Crimean Tatars. So Crimea um, is an island that is, or a peninsula that is in between Russia and Ukraine. And the Crimean Tatars were um, mass expelled from Crimea, about a quarter million of them, to uh, special settlements, camps, right, Um, in Kazakhstan, which is about 4,000 kilometers away, And in Siberia and other far flung parts of sort of eastern Russia. So they go from you're sort of um, densely populated for the time, um, in the like with water access, access to Turkey, access to Ukraine, access to Russia, and they're forced on these trains with no air, no water, no food, and many, many, many of the quarter million uh, Crimean Tatars die on the way. Um, and it's estimated that by the end, by the time they're in these special camps, about 20% of um, the Crimean Tatars who were deported uh, died either along the journey or in the horrible camps. Um, there's a lot of eyewitness accounts about uh, that have been recorded over this t- period of time about the actual deportation of Crimean Tatars that... Um, it was not well executed. That uh, people had fifteen to thirty minutes to collect their belongings, and um, this was 1944. So there were a lot of people who were like, "Why bother gathering my belongings? I'm obviously going on a train to my death." Um, so this is important, right? This is um, this is an entire uh, demographic shift on this peninsula to uh, from a sort of. Turkic, Muslim, Soviet population dominating this area to now a fully ethnic Russian domination of this area. And we get sort of Crimean Tatars out in Kazakhstan through the end of the Soviet Union. 1991 was the first time that they were even allowed to return to Crimea. So in addition to the sort of horrible suffering of the Crimean Tatars, you now have this infusion of ethnic Russians that becomes important in our contemporary situation with Ukraine. So my argument here is that we can use this tipping point, the deportation of Crimean Tatars, to understand what has unfolded in Crimea in the last few years. So this is Crimea, this little peninsula out here. Here's Russia, Ukraine, Turkey. This is the Black Sea. Very fertile lands, um, definitely really conducive to agriculture. and it's changed hands several times in modern history, mostly between Russia and Ukraine. Um, it's also had some time as an independent republic. But it's, proxima, it's, its proximity to Russia and the states of the European Union, as well as to Istanbul, um, make it a really important geopolitical spot for uh, really the last hundred years of history in this region. Um, its position between, so its position was, uh, made it sort of the site of violence in World War II. German, the German troops occupied, and Hitler had this idea of populating Eastern Europe with Germans, you know, to cleanse it. And so he occupied Crimea, and they fought back, and there was a site of, you know, sort of gruesome violence um, and resistance, which is really important. And then after the defeat of the Germans, um, (coughs) Stalin made this sort of a priority to restore this peninsula's greatness. Right. So you sort of just regain it back from the Germans. You want to restore its greatness. So you deport all of the Crimean Tatars and bring in all the ethnic Russians, right? So looking at really the face of hypocrisy of Stalin's regime. Um, so in 1954, this is after Stalin dies, um, Khrushchev comes into power, the Soviet Union. Khrushchev is extremely unpopular with Russians, especially today. Um, he's one of the only Soviet leaders who is not buried in the Kremlin. Um, he's buried outside in Novodevichy in the convent, which is also really beautiful, but Um, just the only leader who was not buried within the actual walls of the Kremlin Um, and part of our sort of modern understanding looking back is that Khrushchev gave Crimea to Ukraine so in 1954 Khrushchev um, Crimea was part of Russia and Khrushchev gave sort of no ties uh, just gave it to Ukraine and there are a lot of different reasons that people have speculated why this happened we don't really know for sure Um, my favorite of these speculations is that um, he just really loved Ukraine. Khrushchev just really wanted to give them a gift, uh, so he gave them Crimea. Um, regardless though of the sort of reasons behind this transfer, overnight it added a million ethnic Russians to the population of Ukraine. So recall that Ukraine is one of the Soviet socialist republics that has the bad national identity. right? So you have this very strong national identity that is tied to the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian history, the sort of unique, separation from Russia, um, and now you have this infusion of a million ethnic Russians overnight, like just like that, into Ukraine. So this is important. This is important for modern politics. This, this is a map of the 2010 election results and uh, ethnic linguistic makeup of Ukraine. So here's Ukraine. This little guy here is the peninsula of Crimea. Um, on this map, this is the percent of the population in these districts with um, Russian as the native language. So light colors are less than 20%, dark colors are over 50%. You can see that Crimea, over half are sort of ethnically identified as Russians or use Russian as a native language, and that holds for most of Eastern Ukraine, which are the sites of contestation now. And, sorry, I said I wasn't gonna come to this side. Here are the presidential election results for 2010. Timoshenko is in red, that is the pro EU and pro sort of Ukrainian nationalist presidential candidate. And Yanukovych is the pro Russian, anti EU presidential candidate. And what happens in 2010 is you get these elections that are contested. The um, Yanukovych wins, the Russian aligned uh, president wins. And he, um, the series of events that happens after he wins, leads to Euromaidan. Um, Can I get a show of hands if you've heard that Euro Maidan? Okay, cool. Um, So what happens here is that Yanukovych wins. He's aligned with Russia. Um, His policies are aligned with Russia. He um, he shuts down the process of Ukraine uh, applying to and entering the European Union. He shuts that down. So he instead takes a bailout from Russia. And there is hell to pay, right? So you have this huge explosion, and Euromaidan explodes, protests in Kiev, uh, tires set on fire. You saw the scenes, right, in the news devastating sort of property damage, riots. People were absolutely insanely upset. Um, so looking at this map, we can see the historical and dem- demographic legacy of the Soviet Union in this map, right? And we can see that regional divide that holds for um, – and, and see why this might exacerbate divides, regional divides and, in politics, right? And see why this might have led to a, a split population about are we going to align ourselves with Russia or are we going to align ourselves with the European Union. So here's a scene from the front of an administrative building in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine where pro-Russian protesters are removing the blue and yellow flag, that's the Ukrainian flag, um, and they're re- they're replacing it with the white, blue, and red Russian flag. So reports of Russian troops and planted activists definitely widely circulated, um, but in March 2014, a referendum was held and Crimean residents overwhelmingly voted to join Russia. Um, even though we have a lot of ideas about sort of the influx of Russian influences, of sort of planted Russian activists. Certainly, we have photographic evidence of Russian tanks um, at this time in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Most independent observers uh, did say that the election, the referendum, was sort of a free and fair process. Um, So you have these sort of ethnic Russians and... um, and and sort of defending their right to self-determination, defending their right to join Russia. And of course Putin has co-opted this. So Putin vigorously defends the right of Crimean residents to participate in this referendum, right? Why would it, if you are the West and you believe in self-determination so much, why won't you let Crimea decide where it wants to be, right? Okay, so we'll rewind a little bit and go back into the Soviet Union now. I want to talk a little bit about Gorbachev. So Gorbachev was, um, it's important to know that he was a product of this sort of terrible 1930s famine. He was one of the first Soviet leaders that really, as a child, had experienced Soviet policies. And he was the first Soviet leader to say, we should probably do things differently, right? None of the stuff that we're doing is working. And so we need to at least tweak it, at least adjust it. He was the first leader to criticize the economic policy, the first leader to criticize the sort of um, central command economy, the central planned economy, um, and he acknowledged, openly acknowledged, the stagnation of both the Communist Party and the Russian economy. So he wanted to save socialism, and I want to be really clear here. Gorbachev was not a revolutionary. Gorbachev really was a believer. He believed in socialism. He believed that um, that socialism could make the world a better place, but only if it was done right, only if it was done without corruption. And so what he wanted to do was take away corruption. And so the unintended consequences of Gorbachev's reforms were that this sort of like carefully constructed image of economic superiority of capitalism and the carefully constructed image of superiority of communism and the Communist Party were starting to deteriorate because of this. So there were two reform efforts that Gorbachev made. And the first one I'll talk about is Perestroika. So Perestroika was the economic restructuring to try to restructure the sluggish Soviet economy. So Gorbachev attempted to do this by implementing reforms that would eliminate corruption and the the sort of bottlenecks that seemed to stem from this corruption and from the central planning system. So recall that um, the Soviet economy at this point is basically based on, in Moscow, a bunch of economists decide What you're going to grow on your collective, right? And they give you a quota of what you're going to grow. Uh, We don't care if you have a drought. We don't care if you have extra, right? We're just going to give you a quota of what you have to meet. And this was true for basically every single aspect of the Russian economy, of the Soviet economy, is that you had quotas for cotton in Central Asia. You had quotas for textiles that you'd make in a factory in St. Petersburg. Um, And so what Gorbachev wanted to do was to, um, to, to streamline this economy and give it a jump start. He certainly did not want to replace it with a capitalist economy. He certainly did not want to replace it with a market or end the Soviets' control over this planned economy. But what he did instead was he implemented reforms like administrative guidelines instead of quotas. Um, he, uh, instead of sort of Moscow telling you what to do, um, you have got like guidelines on what you might grow in Central Asia if you're going to grow cotton. Um, So a little relaxation, but certainly nothing revolutionary. Um, And then you were allowed to uh, have private ownership. And this was revolutionary. So you were allowed to have now private ownership of firms. You're allowed to have foreign investment, which was extremely radical for the time. Um, If you remember the sort of Iron Curtain and the, um, the inability to even have dialogue, right, between the East and the West, the ability to have foreign investment was extremely radical. Okay, but um, they didn't work, and if anything, uh, these reforms actually just added administrative layers onto the system and allowed for more points of corruption. So if perestroika then was the economic component of the reform package that Gorbachev pushed, glasnost was this sort of socio-political component of it. Um, Glasnost, or openness, Uh, that's what the word means in Russian, had one overarching goal, and this was increased government transparency. Um, So this really did work. (laughs) This worked a lot. Um, This worked in really unintended ways. What this did was create space for civil society. So you were allowed to now have different parties other than the Communist Party, which had not been allowed since Lenin's time. Um, This was a real avenue in which you could criticize the governance of the Soviet Union. Um, censorship in the media relaxed, which is something that um, that was really unexpected, and this leads to the sort of next tipping point as the sort of unintended consequence of creating space for civil society and creating space for opposition, in which you have revolutions. So this growing economic discontent, because Perestroika didn't work. So you have this growing economic discontent, economic reforms don't hold, but the civil society reforms really do hold. And so this combination, primarily as you see here in Eastern Europe and not um, over here in the Caucasus or Central Asia, (coughs) you get mobilization. So you have lots of hot spots, um, the newfound ability to publicly demonstrate and hundreds of thousands of people take to the street in East Germany, um, in Poland, in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. Um, the Berlin Wall falls right in 89 um, statues of Lenin are removed from across eastern Europe and in some cases um, uh, in central Asia they just take the statues of Lenin and they move them and they just lie them down in a field and you can still go and see them today and people do they go and see these like weird tourist attractions of like dead Lenin uh, which is maybe not as strange as Lenin's mausoleum in Moscow, in Red Square, where you can actually go see dead Lenin, um, which is very strange. Uh, so, so yeah, Lenin himself was not removed from Red Square. He's still there today. You can stand in line and pay a lot of money to go see him. Um, but but Lenin's statues are removed, right? And so um, across Eastern Europe, uh, there are very iconic images, right, of people pulling down Lenin statues and... And this was a a moment of optimism for the US and for the West. This was a moment of optimism that our way was winning, right? Our way, democracy, this openness, you know, maybe they would even have market economies, right? We had this moment of extreme optimism for this region. Including, so there's also fences along the border border here between Austria and Hungary. And um, the story there for these fences is that residents came in, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, and they chapped up the fences with scissors, which I think is really remarkable. They just were like, we're done. So now we have exchange of information between the East and the West for the first time in about 70 years. Um, We have all of this mobilization. And, of course, this leads to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Of course. And, you know, honestly, we talk about this as the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it really was an implosion. Um, there was a coup, there were um, some failed coup attempts before uh, the, basically, the old Soviet guys in charge just said, okay, oh, we're done. We don't want to do this anymore. And and really, it, it had the potential to be this explosive, um, you know, explosion of the Soviet Union, but but it really, in the end, imploded. And... Um, And a lot has been written on the actual mechanisms behind the collapse, and I won't go into it here, but I do recommend some further reading if you're interested. Um, There's some really good reading about why that happened and the sort of political actors that were involved. Um, But the outcome of the collapse then was the sort of overnight independence from Moscow for many of these republics. some of the republics went towards democratization. They they really fulfilled the sort of U.S. and Western hope of you know going more towards the West, going more towards the European Union, going more towards democracy. And very quietly, Central Asia went towards autocracy, and did not go towards democracy. And basically, the leaders there started consolidating their power. Um, what this also did was it created overnight packets of ethnic Russians recall all of that forced mi- migration that had been going on for generations. So now you have pockets of ethnic r- Russians who are now not only minorities, but potentially uh, exploited and discriminated against minorities because of the relationship between Russia and the other Soviet socialist republics. And this plight of ethnic Russians abroad after the collapse of the Soviet Union was a point around which Russian nationalists began to organize. So this um, this is one of my subjects of study. This is Vladimir Zhirinovsky. Um, he is a Russian nationalist from the—he's the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, which is nothing like it sounds. Um, they're super xenophobic. They, um, they want to defend the land borders of Russia, which is, like, the longest land border in the world. And um, they want to build fences, which—does that sound familiar to us from U.S. politics right now? Um, so this is uh, Jiranovsky. He's pointing on this billboard in Moscow, uh, and he's saying, LDPR for ethnic Russians— so not, not the nicest guy. And he dresses up in like military garb in debates and accuses the other men in the debates of not being fertile. So it, really, honestly, it, he's, he's the predecessor of what we have going on today in a lot of ways. Um, but wh- So what's happening then is this sort of like, radical Russian nationalism arises. Vladimir Jaranovsky, by the way, uh, came in third in the presidential election in <coughs> 1993. So, two years after the collapse, you start having this very radical Russian nationalism um, arising and, and doing well. Um, and this party still exists today. Uh, Zhirnovsky still goes into the parliament in his general's outfit and still accuses people of not being able to reproduce somehow. And it's still this very much like machismo nationalism <laughs> um, that's very uh, nasty. And, this used to be very radical for Russia. This used to be, you know, Dzeronovsky used to be the sort of clown that you would make fun of in Russian politics because he's so radical. And his platform has not changed. I've done an analysis of it. It has not changed over the last 15 years. It has not changed at all. And the one of the primary tenets of this policy, it, of this political platform, is to defend ethnic Russians. And Putin co-opted it. He co-opted it for Crimea, right? You want to defend ethnic Russians who are being exploited abroad. You want to defend your national people, right? The people who share that connection with you, you annex Crimea. So this former nationalist sort of radical platform is being co-opted into the administration, into Putin's administration as a pretext for, for war, right? Of course, Using this rationale that ethnic Russians are sort of concentrated in a region um, in another sovereign state, but we must still defend them, it's very scary to places like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Kazakhstan. So here's a map of, this is right after um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the red dots are um, concentrations of ethnic Russians. And then here's Kazakhstan. And you can see up here in Latvia, there's another set of, these new minorities, right? These new ethnic Russian minorities. And because you get this restructuring, you have a lot of nationalist policies in these new, so, so, um, newly independent states where now Russian is not the language of education, right? <coughs> and we will re- resist this Russification, right? That was a Soviet policy. And so in a lot of places, the charges of the sort of like discriminated against ethnic Russian population are trumped up, right? A lot of, sorry for the pun. Um, But in a lot of cases, right, it's exaggerated, but in a lot of cases, it's not. In a lot of cases, like the Baltic states, you cannot get a job if you speak only Russian, right? You have to speak a native language in order to get a job with the government, right? You have to be able to sort of converse in this new cultural capital, Right? in order to be economically prosperous. So I will say that I think that um, there are exaggerated claims of what Putin might do here. Um, I don't think that Putin has any intentions to invade Northern Kazakhstan. Um, that seems like a really ill-fated thing. Um, but I will say, I, so Kazakhstan was worried enough um, about this sort of ethnic Russian population that they moved their capital from here up to here so that they could have some legitimate say that no, this is our land, this is Kazakhstan, you cannot come and get it, right? So while I think the claim that Putin might use this pretext for you know, Brighton Beach is probably overblown, um, there is some concern on the case of Baltic states and Central Asia that this pretext could be used again. Yeah, this is newly independent states, so this is 91. Yeah, so a lot of the ethnic uh, Russians migrated out of those areas, like northern Kazakhstan was particularly, um, right after the collapse. There was a big invite in Russia that said, if you're ethnic Russian and you've been, you know, crea- you've been in this isolated area with all these other ethnicities, oh, gross, then come back home, right? Um, and a lot of people did do that. A lot of people did select to go back to Russia or to other places. Um, but a lot of them didn't, and especially in Crimea, there was still a lot of ethnic Russians. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, is what does it look like today? Today, yeah, yeah. I wish we had a map. Okay. So in 1998, after this sort of um, the collapse of the Soviet Union, not only created this newly independent states, but it created a lot of economic turmoil. And Russia sort of like tried to sort of you know um, hammer out an economy for a couple of years. And they did start to sort of have some starts, have some more prosperity. Um, But then in 1998, uh, the Southeast Asian financial crisis hit, and it had these ripple effects, and the ruble essentially collapsed in in 98. Um, And at the same time, that following year, there was a terrorist attack in Moscow um, that killed 300 people in an apartment building. And um, the administration blamed it on Chechen uh, radicals, so these are Typically, Islamic people from, Chechn- from Chechnya, um, which is in the Caucasus, and uh, and so we don't know what actually happened, but this was the story. And because of this, um, and because of the economic turmoil, uh, the administration starts pivoting towards national security as the rhetoric, as the sort of purpose of the state. So no longer, there's no longer even really a pretext of building towards democracy or building towards an open society. Now we're really just worried about a secure, stable Russia. Um, And and that has held. That has held. That's certainly a holdover that Putin has uh, used. Okay, so alongside this sort of dramatic renewal of nationalism and this public discourse of national security, something very unexpected happened in 2012. And that was that Russia became the second largest migrant destination in the world. Behind us in the U.S. So um, Russia had never really before been a migrant destination. It had never really been before been a migrant sender. So it has this very new relationship with migration. And particularly, these are not the ethnic Russians, right? These are not the Russians moving back to their homeland. Now we're getting Central Asian Caucasus um, and the people from the North Caucasus moving in as labor migrants and doing this temporary migration. Um, and, And part of the reason that we get this sort of tie, this migration pattern, is because the Soviet legacy was not only sort of cultural, historical, symbolic, or even economic, it was also physical, right? How do you get all of those people back and forth through the Soviet Socialist Republics? You build trains, you build railroads, right? So it's pretty easy to get from Central Asia to Moscow, whereas it's not actually that easy to get to Iran, which is very close, right? You have to get lots of trains, it's very difficult convoluted. So it's easy to go to Russia. You probably have studied the Russian language, and you can expect to make much more in wages, um, even if you got a job in somewhere, say, like Tajikistan. Uh, If you have a wage job, your wages are gonna be way lower in Tajikistan than um, they would be in Russia. So the bulk of the migrants then to Russia, making them the second largest destination um, are from Central Asia and the North Caucasus, and some others from different parts of the former Soviet Union. So that Russia has become a migrant destination for so many different ethnic groups is now a big sticking point for Russian nationalists. right? So they believe that not only should the borders be secured, but they also believe that Russia is the last Christian outpost for this sort of encroaching Islamic culture. Right? So you have Central Asia, which is predominantly Muslim. You have South Asia, you have Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq. Right, All of these are in the sort of neighborhood of Russia. And the radical Russian nationalists of today believe that they are this last Christian outpost that's going to defend the rest of the world from this encroaching sort of Muslim culture. Right, um, Violence against migrants is not uncommon. Um, And raids are becoming increasingly increasingly a tactic used by the Federal Migration Service, who are pictured here. Um, The immigration control going through like a kiosk, which is a pretty common place that you might find migrant labor. (coughs) And that shouldn't be unfamiliar to those of us in the room who follow sort of um, migration news in the United States, where we have ICE raids and detention centers right? and hostilities towards migrants. Um, This is happening in Russia. This is happening in Europe. Great. Um, So the difference here is that the reliance of um, these countries, of Central Asian countries in particular, on migrant remittances is enormous. Tajikistan's GDP is constituted, 50% of their GDP is constituted by migrant remittances. And for Kyrgyzstan, that number is 30%. So half of the GDP in Tajikistan, 30% of the GDP in uh, Kazakhstan. Can anyone guess what the Constitution is of Mexico's GDP, migrant remittances? What do you think? Yeah. I guess 20%. 20%? Who else has a guess? 15. 15? Anybody else? Five. Five? Anybody else? 2%. Two. Two. So imagine, right, we have a sort of geopolitical relationship with Mexico that has a lot of components of sort of thinking about migration, labor migration, how do we, you know, deal with undocumented labor and how do we un- deal, how do we deal with family reunification and all of this? Imagine you're Tajikistan. Half your GDP is made up of migrant remittances. How do you deal with that? You can never oppose Russia. Right? It creates this geopolitical power balance where Russia still has a hold over these countries because if they shut down that migration channel, which they have many times, the countries suffer, right? Okay, so I'm gonna end a little bit early so that um, I leave a lot of time for questions because I know I've covered a lot, but I just wanted to conclude with um, first of all, this photo of Putin, which I really love, which is Putin sort of like gazing out onto his empire, which reminds me a lot of the Lion King for some reason. <laughs> all of these areas, right? So I, I want to just conclude with this idea that when we're talking about contemporary politics in Russia and we're talking about contem- sort of current affairs, um, it's really difficult to divorce that from the Soviet legacy. The Soviet legacy was not just, you know, several generations under some additional set of rules, right? The Soviet legacy was very was transformative. It transformed institutions. It transformed the demographic makeup of an entire region, not just one country, but an entire region. It They moved populations so often that it was hard to keep track of, right? And it created these sort of new pockets of ethnic minorities in the region, and it reinforced these adversarial relationships, right, that we're seeing play out today. We're seeing, you know, Ukraine had a resistance in from 1917 to 1919, and we are seeing that same thing play out today, right? Resisting Russia, resisting Russia's influence. And we've been seeing it for years. And part of it is the Soviet legacy. Part of it is this idea that there was a revolution that transformed every experience, right? Your sort of everyday life experience, your institutional experience, your experience with bureaucracy, where people lived, how they lived, right? So divorcing our conversation about Crimea from the Soviet history of Crimea or divorcing the sort of idea of um, Putin's response to the crisis in Syria from our legacy with Islam in the Soviet Union, right? Our legacy of Islam in the last 25 years Um, is... It's taking only a, a piece of the pie and not really taking that holistic approach, right? And so I'm hoping that because of this talk, or you've probably had it in you all the time, and I'm just bringing it out a little bit, that um, that you're able to sort of talk to your students about this region and have a little bit more of a holistic and nuanced approach to sort of this weird, wacky region that you could definitely have a surface analysis of that is like, oh, look at Putin, he's so crazy. He's so much right? he right? poses shirtless with bears and stuff, right? There's a lot of things that we could do that are sort of surface-level, fun Russia activities, right? But to really get deeper into the region and to think about the Soviet legacy, I think is important to understand these current events. So I'll just end on um, some further reading if you're interested in any component of this, and then I'll take any of your questions that you want. Yeah. So in my classroom, about half of my students are classes speaking Slavic language some And I understand better now some of the tension between my like, students from Ukraine and Russia. I really wonder still, I don't understand why so many students and so many families have come to settle in our area. I don't understand, it's a religious freedom issue from what I understand. But I, don't, I don't get it. So Slavic, um, migration in general to the United States to, Well, in our area is, mm-hmm. a, is a place where people have come, and, and we have Slavic churches all over. Okay, I know that it's an Orthodox right, That's something. But why? What, what drove them Sure. So one of the things that I will say is that when you start getting um, in migration theory, we typically typically talk about the the start of a migration stream as pioneers. So pioneers will come and maybe build the Orthodox Church, right? And then you know that there's a Slavic community in that area, and you have these network connections and say, "Hey, I got a job in Bellevue or wherever," right? And so I, I'm going to follow my cousin, or I'm going to follow my dad's friend, or I'm going to follow whoever, and you get this sort of cumulative migration experience where, um, where more and more people migrate, and they may not be sort of pro- like, there may not be actual push factors right now um for that individual but maybe they're following a sort of more optimistic like i could go and still have my church and still have my like slavic identity but have like better wages and have you know better sort of freedom of the press and say whatever i want right and so there, there definitely are push factors in in eastern europe and russia now um, i mean politics is not great in russia if you're lgbt if you're a foreigner you're not ethnically Russian. I mean, politics are not great, um, everyday politics, right? Lots of hate crimes and vandalism. Lo- still lots of anti-Semitism in Russia, for sure. Um, Anti-Western. So, yeah, I'm not sure about, like, your specific region, but, you know, once you get established Slavic communities or established any communities... I get that. I easy. Maybe there's some yeah. push thing you yeah, a push that you use to push, I didn't think that. So. Yeah, maybe. Thank you. Yeah. My question is, what is the um, population... Breakdown of that map that you gave us of Ukraine. You were showing that um, the split between there and where it was. Um, what is the general population? Oh, like above? the numbers? Yeah, we're being because it looks like that geographically the area that is pro. Um, I don't know European alliance one is, bigger is bigger than the other. Yeah. So what is the demographic? And it has Kiev, right? So it definitely has the capital city. It has Kiev and. There are lots of population centers around. I'm not sure about the actual numbers, um, but certainly, yeah, you can see that there must be. Uh, there are like population centers acro- across Eastern Ukraine. Are there more on this side than there are on the other side? Yeah, I mean, Western Ukraine is a little bit more rural, right? So when you when you get past Kiev, like out here, this starts to become a little bit more rural. I'm not sure about the numbers though, like specifically. Oh, we can look it up, though. I okay. love <laughs> Could you talk about the, the Syria? What's sure. That? Yeah. Um, anything specific? Well, you, you had mentioned that you were going to talk about Putin and Assad. So. OK. So, um, so my comments don't represent the um, Jackson School of International Studies. Uh, but so my, here's my take on it. Putin and Assad. So because Russia considers itself as this sort of like last Christian outpost, and because there's a proximity there to Syria that we don't have, um, and that actually most of Western Europe doesn't have, um, there are a couple of options for Putin in Syria. Putin could align with NATO forces, uh, which he hates, spies NATO, um, and, and, and classify the violent actors, right? They're, remember that they're political actors, and that in war, like we create the sides, Right, like we sort of construct the groups um, as we see fit. So there are rebels. There's the state. There are terrorist groups. Um, and who you sort of um, decide is on like your side is certainly like a political act, right? So in my thought, in my perspective, Putin has a couple of options. He could um, get into this war and align with the U. S. and NATO allies to say that the rebels are the good guys, Assad are, is a bad guy, and also the terrorists are bad guys, and we can't really distinguish between terrorists and rebels, and so we're going to do our best, but there might be some casualties, like you know, collateral damage. Or Putin could say, Assad's doing a really good job of holding this country together despite the like r- resistance and despite the rebels and all of these terrorist groups, so I'm gonna support him in doing that thing um, and I'm not going to make the same mistake that the U.S. did going into Iraq. right? So I'm not going to um, take human rights as a pretext, oust some leader that's keeping together a country, and then watch it deteriorate into these sort of cells that are now prone to terrorist activity. So I think in some ways Putin had to make the decision between do you want human rights violations addressed, which is a little hypocritical if he takes that position, right? Or do you want security and stability? And when we look at Putin's entire administration and the rhetoric that he has been using, I don't think it's a surprise that he went for security and stability. And and for him, I think the rebels are part of the terrorism problem, right? And, and for him, rebellion is not a positive thing. Democratization is full of conflict and he doesn't want to see that in, in the region, so. Yeah. Does that help? Kind of along the same line, I mean, do you feel that um, perhaps Putin's actions are to guarantee um, influence in the region as well as access to the seaport there as well as a ready-made customer for Russian-made weapons? I mean, all of those sound like really good ideas if they're his ideas, right? I I think that there's lots of historical precedents for Russia and Taking invading a country or taking the side of some autocratic leader because it's strategic for them in the future. Yeah, I I certainly don't think... I mean, I've I've been in classrooms where students have asked me if Putin's a madman and if he's, like, this irrational actor who is, like, just invading Crimea willy-nilly. No way. He's way more dangerous than that. Super strategic. Super smart. Yeah. So, kind of on that same word, what's the status of Eastern... The status of Eastern Ukraine now. Um, you know, the, the status of Eastern Ukraine is basically unrest, um, like a really stable unrest, right? So um, Eastern Ukraine is not part of Russia. Um, I don't know what, I, I can't really look into that, you know, that, what are these crystal balls? Oh, crystal balls. Uh, I can't really look into a crystal ball and say, like, this is what I think Putin is going to do. Um, I wish I could, I'd you know, be a really famous academic. Um, but I you know I don't know what's gonna happen with Eastern Ukraine a, a couple of years ago I gave a talk on Russia to some of my students at UW and I was asked if you know in the next five years we would see Crimea on the map as part of Russia or part of Ukraine and you know I answer, I was like it's gonna be part of Ukraine I don't see Russia taking it and I was really wrong really, really wrong like, like since the, the airliner really backed off but have they really backed off or Still, yeah. still you know, a little bit more subtle. Yeah, and you know, the, the problem with studying sort of contemporary politics is that, like, some of that stuff you have to wait to see, and some of that stuff we're gonna have to wait to see, like, you know, is WikiLeaks gonna release something that's helpful? Because I don't think we're getting the information, certainly, we're not. related really to the same thing, then. What is their political cycle? Do they how long before their next elections? Oh. And is this a stability that's artificial, that's here because of the alliance with um, Russia currently? Or is it something that could creep back up? How? Do you mean people, Ukraine's elections yeah, cycle? How, how um, st- stable is that? I mean, Ukraine has had its share of, like, revolutions and coups and, you know, political unrest and for, you know, the last 25 years, really. And I don't, I think that Ukraine is fairly stable in terms of, they're not getting revolutions on the scale of like a Bolshevik revolution. They're not getting like transformative political power changes, but they certainly, they certainly cycle through, right? They certainly have like, you know, because they're in this weird place, they're in this weird place between East and West. And they've for so long been exploited by Russia and you know, there's lots and lots of stories of, like Russia cutting off their gas pipeline. I mean, Russia can cut off the power to Ukraine at any time, and they have. And so they're like under the shadow and the thumb of Russia, and they're in this weird place of, you know, trying to decide, are we going to be Western or Eastern? And they're in this buffer zone, right? And they're important to a lot of different geopolitical actors, so I think they're going to continue being in this position for a really long time. I think it's sort of, it's, it's like almost like a geography problem, right? I think I think they're going to be in this. Let me go here and then I'll, I'll get to you. Again. Yeah. Can you uh, comment at all about um, like Kazakhstan and Nazarbayev?
1: and this like? I feel like we
0: kind of ignore Central Asia constantly, but they're we're also looking at the, the resources and the relationship with Russia. Yeah. Uh, like your your views on yeah? This role? Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. Central Asia is my yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So Central Asia is like is of way more geopolitical importance than we give it as like the State Department gives it or Why as. We ignore it. That's my big question. Quite it. Why do we ignore it? it? Okay, um, I think the diplomatic response is that like we don't have the resources, the popular support, or the proximity to run like intervention in Central Asia. And I think that as recently as 2015, the State Department has really talked about more about um, helping Central Asian countries move on their own towards economic <coughs> reform and human rights uh, and and fixing human rights violations. Um, it used to be that we wanted like that democratic intervention. We want we sent in experts to Central Asia, and we were like, here's how you run an election, and here's how you do all this civil society stuff. And they were like, okay, but well, we need food, right? So like I think that you know part of the economic um, reasons that you get autocracy is because you're a poor country with few resources, and you get things like oil money, and you get things like natural resource money, natural gas money. And it all flows through like one family and they consolidate power, right? And um, so I would say that yeah, Central Asia is of real importance. This is real importance to me, it's of real importance to a lot of different political actors in the region, particularly now China, Iran, Russia. Um, and it certainly is on the radar for the State Department, um, in terms of I mean, as I've heard. Uh, but yeah, we've really like pared down how much we talk about this is kind of silent and creeping. Kind of like we're gonna all of a sudden oh central asia is now in the news we for now just realizing it in terms of- you know i like for my own selfish reasons i wish yes okay. but i don't actually